Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I cut through the BS and lay out what the gaslighting clowns pulled out of their hats this week and what is coming next. Germany, Europe's largest economy, is deindustrializing faster than a grad student can throw soup at a Picasso, setting itself up as the first big victim of the green jihad and their Stone Age fetish for making us eat bugs. Fresh data says Germany's industrial production fell for the seventh straight month, bringing it to levels last seen in 2006, that's 18 years ago. Another 5%, and they'll be at 1990s levels when the Berlin Wall fell. As Ms. Shedlock put it, quote, Germany's industrial superpower days are over. Of course, while Germany's largest industrial economy in Europe, the problem is Europe-wide, given the influence environmental activists have in Brussels, extending way beyond throwing soup at Picasso's all the way to deindustrializing the continent and handing their economic destiny to a third world who China and Russia are busy recruiting into their anti-Western BRICS block. As Bloomberg put it, quote, Germany's industrial machine have fallen like dominoes with the final blow, quote, the end of cheap Russian natural gas. Hope the Ukraine meat grinder was worth it. So first the numbers. Germany's output slumped 1.6% on the previous month. That's an annualized one-fifth drop, almost 20%. Economists had expected 0.3% growth, suggesting that Europe's mainstream economists are as useless as our own. The biggest drops were energy-intensive sectors, where the Greens have replaced cheap fossil fuels with trillion-dollar gimmicks, paving the continent with dodgy solar and bird-chopping windmills. Construction fell 3.4%, chemicals dropped 7.6% to 1995 levels, energy dropped 15% in one month, as Germany's last nuclear reactor, its last lifeline, was mothballed. To give a sense, Bloomberg profiled a Dusseldorf steel plant closing after 124 years, laying off everybody but the guys whose job is to disassemble the machinery and presumably sell it for pennies on the dollar to China. The data would have been worse, but for a rebound in cars where American and European consumers are digging even deeper into debt to make up for the cars they didn't buy during the supply chain crisis. And also airplanes, where Boeing's clown show has driven orders to their main competitor, Europe's Airbus, with China waiting in the wings. So what's driving it? Easy energy. As Brussels deconstructs Europe's productive economy, so the weather gods stop making grad students glue themselves to highways. In just three years, Germany's energy prices have jumped almost 150%, driven both by decommissioning local energy and by the Russia sanctions and green activists who have now shuttered both nuclear and coal leaving renewable gimmicks to pretend to provide energy. Ironically, even solar panels are cutting staff and closing down, hampered by energy prices, it takes a crap load of energy to make a solar panel, and by cutthroat competition from China, which dumped trillions of subsidies into its own solars, which in turn are wiping out Europe's crony green manufacturers, as well as America's. So what's next? Next is Europe is disassembling its economy and shipping it overseas, with America not far behind. German chemical giant BASF just plowed $10 billion into a state-of-the-art manufacturing complex in China. The West is throwing away energy, is throwing away farming, is throwing away manufacturing, handing it on a silver platter to countries too poor to have climate cult grad students deciding their economic destiny. But what ended? Easy, populist gaining power and actually helping the industries that sustain our prosperity. The Global Uniparty, of course, likes what's happening just fine and will do everything they can to prevent that. 
Retail sales are crashing as the American consumer finally hitting the cat food. In a recent video, I mentioned how there are three key economic numbers that voters use to rate the economy, inflation, GDP, and consumer spending. In that video, I mentioned that robust consumer spending isn't so much optimism for the future at the moment as people trying to keep their head above water. Exhibit A being soaring default rates. The problem with debt-fueled consumer spending, of course, is that it is unsustainable. Every month, the debt gets bigger, not least because the 600 million credit cards in America charge 25% interest. Note, 49% of American cardholders are currently carrying a balance, meaning they are paying 25% interest, which is not far from what the mafia charges. Well, it turns out unsustainable comes at you fast. Fresh numbers last week say retail sales are tanking. They fell 0.8% on the month. That's an annualized drop of almost 10%, which would qualify as a crash. It was the worst year-on-year retail spending numbers since the worst of the COVID lockdowns. Incidentally, the previous month was also revised down. As always, Biden's finest statisticians hiding the bad news where the media sun don't shine. In fact, adjusting for inflation, total retail sales in the U.S. are now below the level of 2021 before Joe Biden's inflation took off. So going on three years, we've actually been down. As Zero Hedge put it, the soft landing is morphing into a crash landing. The worst of the month were cars and building materials. In other words, people are pulling back on big ticket spending, given that cars and houses are by far the most expensive consumer goods. But it was down across the board with declines in gasoline, people are driving less, health, miscellaneous retailers, clothing, even sports equipment as people are staying home. The bigger picture here is that despite media gaslighting on consumer spending, the data says consumers are worried. My colleague EJ Antoni posted the widely cited Index of Consumer Sentiment from the University of Michigan, which measures how optimistic consumers feel about their finances and the state of the economy. The version that we usually see in the media goes back to 2021, when they were just ending lockdowns with Biden safely installed in the White House. So it looks great, because the economy is no longer locked down. But if you zoom out, EJ went back to 1960, it is a very different story. In fact, over those 60 years, consumer sentiment has only been this bad in the middle of recessions. So consumers are spending, sure, but they're spending like it's a recession. In other words, they're spending to keep their heads above water. So what's next? Retail sales now joins industrial production, housing starts, and housing permits as numbers that have all registered stagnation just in the past week. With inflation now rising for four months in a row, that stagnation is quickly morphing into stagflation. I've mentioned in recent videos my biggest concern, the doomsday scenario, which is that we are repeating the 1970s double-peak stagflation, this time with an even more incompetent and venal president in office that could make it last four years. I'm a big fan of saving Bitcoin for the long term, and the Unchained Bitcoin IRA is a great way to do that. You get the tax advantages, and if it's a Roth IRA, you're not going to pay capital gains so long as you hodl. Most Bitcoin IRAs make you give up control, which can expose you to exchange hacks or even relend it out like banks do. With Unchained, you control the keys to your Bitcoin, which means you always know it's there. They also provide one-on-one concierge service to walk you through it and answer any questions. Why pay more taxes than you need to? Set it up today at Unchained.com. Use promo code PETER to get $100 off a Bitcoin IRA. 
Household debt is soaring, with even the New York Fed raising the alarm that mass defaults could be coming. In a fresh report last week, Americans' household debt rose $212 billion in the fourth quarter to a record $17.5 trillion. That is about $141,000 in debt per American household, up $2,000 on the quarter. By the way, that's up $3.5 trillion since pre-pandemic, and of course it does not include the federal debt. That one is up $10 trillion since pre-pandemic. Put them together and the average American household has taken on $103,000 in fresh debt since COVID, made up of $27,000 in private debt and $76,000 in federal debt. Breaking it down, Americans are now carrying $12.3 trillion in mortgages, which is up $112 billion on the quarter, $1.6 trillion in car loans, another $1.6 in student loans, and a record $1.1 trillion in credit card debt, which is up $50 billion, making for a 20% annualized rate. That brings credit card debt to over $6,000 per household. It's worth mentioning credit cards cost 25% interest at the moment, meaning it is last resort debt, or at least it should be. So what's next? Beyond the debt levels, the main concern, what has the New York Fed concerned, is the default rate. That had plunged during COVID when millions of Americans paid off debt with stimulus checks and because they stopped spending on things like vacations and restaurants since they were all closed. That gave us a low base to start from, so that default rates had been historically low. But that's now changing as Americans have long since run through the trillions they had amassed during COVID. The first debt to break is looking like car loans. That's the one the New York Fed specifically fingered, and there's 280 million of those. What happened is millions of Americans bought cars they couldn't afford during COVID, both because cars were ridiculously expensive with supply chains jammed, but also because stimulus gave them the down payment and artificially boosted their credit scores since credit scores really like it when you pay down debt. The upshot is that tens of millions of Americans are now driving cars they should never have bought. So expect America's leafy suburbs to soon be filled with the sounds of busy repo men. Next after cars is home equity lines, borrowing against your house. Those have risen for the seventh straight quarter, despite fairly savage interest rates. That is a typical pattern when homeowners are in trouble, pretty much the last stage before they stop paying the mortgage. Finally, the big one, credit cards. The Fed noted serious delinquencies rising among all age groups, with young borrowers actually passing their pre-pandemic numbers. In fact, the last time it was this high for all age groups was the 2008 crisis. I mentioned millions of Americans are in financial despair, doom spending, and not even bothering to control their spending, with incomes falling further and further behind. Now, the music is stopping, and here come the defaults. Paired with falling retail sales, debt, and defaults are painting a picture of an American consumer who is falling over the edge. All that before now resurgent inflation comes for another round. The bloodbath in commercial real estate is getting deeper. It's so bad, even regulators, who are normally a banker's most loyal pet, are sounding the alarm. A few days ago, the Financial Times of London reported that loan loss reserves, so that's money that banks set aside to cover bad loans, have soared at the largest U.S. banks, to the point that reserves against bad debt are down to just 90 cents on the dollar that's down from $1.60 last year. So down by half and right into the red. What's driving the red ink is a, quote, sharp increase in late payments on office buildings, shopping malls, apartments, and other commercial real estate. 
Late payments are pretty much the last step to default, so that's threatening potentially hundreds of billions of commercial real estate loans. This has doubled delinquent commercial property debt at U.S. banks over the past year. It's actually tripled at the big six megabanks. In fact, out of those big six, Goldman is the only one who has more reserves than bad debt. Bank of America, the second biggest bank in the country, has just 60 cents on the dollar, which they recently cut since daddy needed to fatten up the profits. It's worth mentioning that American banks' commercial real estate loans total roughly $560 billion. It's actually much worse for the smaller regional banks. Their commercial real estate makes up fully one-third of their loan book. In other words, about one-third of their assets. If those drop, the bank could collapse. In fact, that's already happening. Just a few weeks ago, New York Community Bank plunged by half after reporting hundreds of millions in previously undisclosed commercial loan losses. It was essentially bailed out by the major banks. Yes, the very same ones who've got 90 cents on the dollar of reserves. There will certainly be more to come. So what's next? In recent videos, I've talked about the disaster in commercial real estate, partly because COVID made a lot of companies switch to work from home and partly because of the stagnant economy. So economic booms drive up the price of office space, and when the boom ends, prices go down. But the cherry on top has been America's, quote, urban doom loop, the willful destruction of our cities by socialist revolutionaries who want criminals to run free, presumably to accelerate the revolution, or perhaps just to buy activist goodwill. Unfortunately, none of these things are improving anytime soon. The economy is going deeper into stagflation. I've mentioned major companies are now implementing mass layoffs, and the major cities are, if anything, getting worse. Given all this, loan reserves could turn out to be just 50 cents on the dollar. So expect more bank bailouts, more bank takeovers, and more crony programs like the Fed's so-called bank term funding program that effectively pre-bail out the bankers every time they screw up. When the smoke clears, we could see dozens of major regional banks disappear, gobbled up at taxpayer expense by Wall Street's too-big-to-fail Borg, leaving them free to strip-mine the economy and hand the bill to the rest of us. This podcast is supported by our sponsor, MoneyMetals.com, the most trusted bullion dealer and depository in the United States. Known for their competitive pricing, excellent customer service, and fast delivery of physical gold and silver, as well as their educational content and advocacy for sound money policies at the state and federal level. They've set the industry standard for selling, buying, and storing precious metals. If you're looking to help protect yourself against inflation and market turmoil, I hope you'll give them a try. To learn more or to buy your physical gold and silver, go to moneymetals.com. Argentina's Javier Malay just racked up an impressive win, turning a massive deficit into their first budget surplus in 12 years, all just nine and a half weeks after taking office. Note, the deficit was projected at 5% of GDP under the previous government, so in U.S. terms, he turned a $1.2 trillion annual deficit into a $400 billion surplus in nine and a half weeks. How did he do it? Easy. He cut a bevy of agency budgets by 50% while slashing crony contracts and activist handouts. For perspective, if you cut the entirety of Washington's budget by 50%, you would save a cool $3 trillion and start paying down the national debt, dare we dream. Moreover, it turns out it can be done and the world does not actually collapse. In previous videos, I've mentioned Malay's been logging some impressive wins. He slashed crony regulation, got rid of currency controls, an important step to dollarization, 
And he recently slashed rent prices by removing controls. That actually led to a near overnight doubling of apartments for rent in Buenos Aires. So they got cheap. Unfortunately, it's not all smooth sailing. A bill to privatize corrupt state-owned companies to effectively de-Sovietize the Argentine economy was blocked by the socialist opposition because they serve the government unions who would lose their jobs. Meanwhile, a major reform to make it a lot easier to hire people was struck down by the high court who said it has to go through Congress, which will block it since, you guessed it, it hurts unions. Still, for the average Argentinian, these are deck chairs on the Titanic compared to the ongoing hyperinflation. Recently, monthly inflation came in at 20.6%. That's on the month. That was a lot better than the outgoing government, but it still left year-on-year inflation at 254%. Why so high? Partly because Malay had to free up the exchange rate to smooth the path to dollarization for Argentina adopting the U.S. dollar instead of the local confetti but mostly because the rivers of money printed up by the socialists continue to run through the battered ruins they left of Argentina's economy. After all, Malay has only been in office for nine and a half weeks. So what's next? Malay's reforms will continue to be trench warfare, but his inflation progress is going to be the key to retaining public support. He just notched a big win on the deficit, but it only stops the bleeding. The patient is still on life support. To fully kill Argentina's hyperinflation, Malay needs real progress on either dollarization or, dare we dream, a gold standard. Now, in dollarization, that might involve, say, announcing a months-long window for peso assets to be revalued in dollars and then switch the economy over completely. He's been preparing the groundwork so far. The currency controls and deficits are a big help, and he is surely motivated to do it since dollarization in other countries that did it has 90% public support after the fact. But it's a complicated process, and if done badly, he'll be dead in the water politically. The stakes are high, and not just for Argentina. If Malay succeeds, he'll be a model for radically shrinking government in other countries in Latin America and the rest of the world, and even for our spineless goblins in Washington. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode fresh in your inbox and go to petersanange.com to read the weekly articles with charts and all the gory details. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.